Uh, I'm Bruce Kane, and I'm the director of the Institute of Governmental Studies, and certainly not well known for my expertise on the Middle East. Uh, so the question is, why is the Institute of Governmental Studies uh, sponsoring this conference? And I think Hetty uh, described uh, one of the motivations, which is that uh, we would like to try to promote a better understanding of Islam uh, as a way of informing the public debate about national security issues, about relationships in the Middle East, etc. Uh, secondly, I think it's a chance for us to partner with uh, some really wonderful centers at Berkeley, uh, and in particular the Center of Middle Eastern Studies. Uh, they uh, have been very helpful to us, and obviously we would not be able to do this without their assistance, and I hope that we can have in, at Berkeley more partnerships between our various centers so that we're not all staying in our fiefdoms but really trying to collaborate to produce a better understanding of what's going on in uh, these areas. Uh, as Hedy said, I, we're hoping that we can focus on the interrelationship between three important factors. Globalization, that is the uh, expansion of the world economy and in, in economic interactions, social interactions that we see taking off almost exponentially in our lifetimes. Uh, democratization, which is uh, also exploded in our lifetimes in Africa, in Eastern Europe, and now in countries in the Middle East. Uh, and, of course, Islam uh, and the possible tensions between religions as globalization occurs and people have to share the same geographic space uh, and have to learn to accommodate with one another. Certainly at Berkeley and in California, we've had to uh, deal with issues of diversity. This has been a topic that This is a topic that we've uh, dealt with in, uh, with respect to Latinos and Asians. Uh, we don't have as much of a presence of uh, the North African and Middle Eastern populations as many of these European nations do, and so their experience with Islam is uh, an important one. So a second motivation for this, aside from informing public opinion, is to ha have a little more insight into the European perspective, and many of the panelists here are uh, European specialists uh, that have uh, shared but also slightly different perspectives on what's going on uh, in terms of uh, the globalization of Islam. And so uh, this is important, obviously, because American foreign policy is not made in a vacuum. Uh, it should be made with allies and uh, understanding the European perspective, uh, both because they have more familiarity with uh, the globalization of Islam and also because we have to work as a partnership. Um, several questions were posed by the Institute of Governmental Studies and Hedy in particular for our panelists. Um, four questions in particular which I will read. How do Muslims recast their own practices to meet the standards and challenges of the societies in which they are currently living? In such recasting, is such recasting always expressed in liberal terms? What are the content and the expression of these new forms of religiosity? To what extent do we witness a process of individualization of religious practice? And how do Muslims appropriate certain Western practices and at the same time try to attach new Muslim values to these practices? These are very contested questions in and of themselves. One can take each of these questions and deconstruct them. Uh, I will certainly not do so right now. Um, and I can indeed also not promise you that our panelists 
will answer them. The idea is, is to actually start a discourse about what is it that globalization really means and how globalization interacts with the current practices that Muslims supposedly have all over the world. Um, I was saying in one of the uh, sessions that we had yesterday, one of the discussions with the group yesterday, it's extremely important to recognize that one of the shifts that has occurred, particularly in the 20th century, is the congruence between Islam and the Arab world. Today, Muslims are the minority in the Arab world in terms of how they relate to the rest of the Muslim world. By this I mean if you take the Muslims in the entire Arab world and compare them to the Muslims around the world, they do not constitute the majority. And that's a very important point to remember. The other point to remember, and this is something I was exposed to when I organized a very similar conference about three years ago, uh, which came out as a book that Manuel Castells and I edited, entitled Muslim Europe or Euro Islam. And I remember the grief that we actually had from many folks who looked at the manuscript before it became a book, because they asked, what is this Muslim Europe? There is no such a thing as a Muslim Europe. Well, guess what? In the year 2050, according to the current birth rates that are going on in many parts of Europe, Europe is likely to be somewhere between 20 to 22 percent Muslim. That is a continental change, or that's a fundamental change in continental terms. In a sense, what we're really witnessing is the emergence of different forms of, of not necessarily religiosity, but rather religious affiliation. And it is something that I hope our panel will be able to shed more light on. Many of uh, you uh, may uh, wonder about uh, the title of the conference, which is not Islam and Democracy. There are dozens of conferences about Islam and Democracy, or Islam, Democracy, and or terrorism, and things like that, you know. But uh, the title is uh, 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 Democracy and Global Islam. Uh, and uh, uh, we have, of course, to... Uh, 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 explain, you know, a bit more uh, uh, about that. Uh, it has already been said, you know, that uh, 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 the Muslim world is not uh, confined to the uh, Middle East. But I would say a bit more than that, probably one-third of the Muslims now in the world live, uh, are living as a minority, you know, uh, in China, India, Russia, Western Europe, you know, and the number is growing. So we have this disconnection, a growing disconnection between uh, Muslims and traditional Muslim lands, which is an important fact. Uh, but the other point is that when we discuss about Islam and democracy, we usually are speaking either, you know, uh, about Islam with a, a capital I, you know, uh, 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 as if there was one Islam, something that uh, uh, is the same everywhere, every time, and for everybody. Hmm? Or we are referring to the Middle East. No. Uh, in a conference about Islam and democracy, uh, people would expect you know, to uh, a, a debate on the Iraqi elections, for example, or elections in Afghanistan, uh, about Lebanon, uh, and even, of course, about radicalism, political violence, terrorism, etc. So uh, Islam and uh, democracy is uh, an issue which is linked with uh, strategic and political issues. Uh, and we used to uh, uh, touch uh, this issue from two perspectives. One, 
would be uh, to um, uh, look at uh, what we used to call the Islamists, you know, uh, the political activists who see Islam as a political ideology. For instance, uh, 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 the Islamic Revolution in Iran, the Muslim Brothers, uh, the Hezbollah in Lebanon, uh, many Shia parties in Iraq, etc., etc. Uh, and in this case, the debate on Islam and democracy would uh, stress, you know, uh, uh, would deal with how uh, to deal with the Islamists. Should we integrate the Islamists in the, uh, 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 the, the electoral process, for example? Should we exclude them? You know, should we fight against them? And so, uh, and this is a very important issue, and I'm sure we'll discuss about this issue today. But uh, 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 the, the, I would say, uh, the problem with this approach is uh, to identify you know, uh, Islam with political ideologies. These political ideologies do exist, you know, and this is an issue. Uh, we cannot just ignore the issue. But we cannot reduce uh, the problem of uh, uh, the relations between uh, democracy and Islam to uh, these uh, political uh, issues. The second point is that usually uh, we tend to see Islam not so much as a mere religion but as a culture, you know, and to wonder whether uh, Muslim cultures are compatible or are uh, open to democratization. So uh, there is a constant mixing between a purely religious approach and a cultural approach. You know. And uh, we have this idea that, in fact, religion and culture are the same things. You know. uh, the fact that one believes or not is not so important, and we could have Muslims, uh, uh, non-believing Muslims, for example, the same way that we have non-believing Jews or non-believing Christians. Uh, I would not say not believing Baptists or not believing Pentecostists. So, uh, so here we touch another problem: uh, the, the symmetry, you know, or the lack of symmetry when we speak about Islam. We speak about Islam in the West. You know, we almost never uh, uh, speak about Islam and Christianity. Or if we speak about Islam and Christianity, it's something else. You know, we are referring here to Christianity as a mere religion and not as a culture, and uh, uh, or uh, surely not as a strategic and Entity. But we, when we speak about Islam, we always have in mind the strategic dimension, you know, the threat or uh, the demographic changes in Western Europe and things uh, uh, like that. Uh, uh, so, in fact, we tend to be all Huntingtonians. Uh, by that I mean we tend to accept, to agree with the idea that cultures are based on religion, and that uh, uh, cultures are rooted in specific territories. So Middle East is Islam as a religion, Islam as a culture, and it's a specific territory, and we have with this territory problems, you know, which could be expressed in uh, strategic terms. Mm. Uh, so in this case, democratization is considered as a policy, you know, as a policy in order to diffuse uh, the threat coming from the Middle East. This is explicitly uh, the justification of uh, the present uh, U.S. policy in the Middle East, uh, the policy of greater Middle East, democratization, and so and so. And even if we 
uh, well, I would drop the we. Uh, even if many people disagree with this approach, they tend still to consider uh, that uh, uh, in Islam, religion, culture, and politics are mixed. We cannot, you know, uh, 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 differentiate. So, in a way, uh, even if we disagree with Huntington, we use the same mental categories, the same concept than he used. So, in the in sense, he's the winner, you know. Uh, and it's why uh, we had we added global, you know, uh, to uh, our conference. So it's not a conference in the Middle East, even if, of course, we'll speak about a uh, uh, Middle East sometime. What do I mean by that, you know, uh, uh, globalization? For me, uh, I will not here uh, give a definition of globalization. Uh, 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 I'm supposed to speak only 15 minutes, so uh, uh, let's drop the definition of globalization. Uh, uh, <laughs> Uh, but uh, we can uh, see uh, that uh, uh, we are in a world where people do travel, do migrate, uh, 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 refer to, uh, I would say, uh, common sources of information that we have a market, uh, uh, like it or not, mm? uh, uh, a market not only of goods, but also a market of ideas. You know? mm? And in fact, what is happening uh, uh, in Cairo, Paris, uh, here, uh, our painting is now interconnected. But, uh, for me, uh, the, uh, uh, the most important thing in the globalization process is that we are witnessing a disconnection, a disconnect, a delinking between religions and cultures. You know? And I, I, I put the plural, you know, religions. You know? It means by that, that in a traditional society, Let's uh, speak of uh, Afghanistan or uh, 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 what do you want, you know. Uh, religion is always embedded in a specific culture. And the people do not make a clear difference between what is cultural and what is religious, you know. For uh, there is some sort of a social authority of religion which uh, uh, is uh, put on the individual uh, even if he's not a real believer. The issue of being a believer is not a real issue. You are part, you know, of a, a, a society. But with the process of globalization, we have a trend to disconnect religion and culture. Of course, it's obvious in the process of immigration. When a Muslim comes to Europe, for example, uh, he has to express uh, his own religion in specific terms. He has to, as Dale Eckelman uh, 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 wrote, he has to objectify Islam, you know. Uh, let's take one example, food. If you are in Cairo, uh, you don't care about uh, the fact that the meat is halal or not. You just do like anybody trying to find the best uh, cost effectiveness, you know, uh, 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 product. If you are a Muslim in Paris, you have to think about that. You have to take a decision. Should I go to the next butcher and find the best meat at the lowest price, or should I travel through the city to buy 
halal food even if I pay more and I waste more time to do that. So you have to think what does it mean to be a Muslim. And you do that in a context where there is no social authority, no establishment, religious establishment, which can not only give you an answer, but also in a way enforce you know, this answer on you, or at least you know, on the social traditions. But it's not just a matter of immigration. It's not just a matter of Muslims living uh, uh, in a minority. It's a low growing uh, 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 trend in Muslim societies too, you know. Uh, uh, this uh, uh, necessity to objectify, to define what does it mean, uh, what is religious, you know. Uh, uh, what I call the, uh, the for, for me, the globalization, the globalization process is uh, uh, the disconnect of the purely religious markers from uh, uh, the cultural markers. For example, uh, uh, a fast food halal, you know. Mm. Uh, uh, in a fast food halal, the fact that the food is Islamic, or, uh, in conformity with uh, uh, the tenets of Islam, has nothing to do with the cuisine. Nothing to do. It's not traditional uh, cuisine. No. It's not uh, uh, when, for example, uh, a young born-again Muslim in Paris opens a, a restaurant. He doesn't open a restaurant called uh, 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 Le Bon Couscous or at the traditional Ottoman cuisine. You know, what does he do? He opens a halal fast food. Yeah. And even in my hometown, I saw halal Greek sandwiches. You know, and the guy, of course, was a Turk, you know, a, a, a Muslim Turk who opened you know, a, a, a shop uh, sending halal Greek sandwich, sandwiches. You know, because he didn't want to be identified in ethnic terms. You know, he wanted to be identified as a mayor Muslim, you know, as a true Muslim, but not as a Turk. You know? So this disconnection between ethnic and cultural identities and religious markers is for me uh, 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 what is at the basis of uh, 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 globalization. Uh, the second point is that in this case, uh, uh, the way religions are expressed uh, is, I would say, transversal. What do I mean by that? I mean this globalization of religions do not change dogmas. You know. It doesn't mean that uh, 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 we are heading towards liberal Islam or protestant Islam. You know. uh, it may but you know, it has nothing to do. Uh, it means that the way a believer uh, relates, if I can say that, uh, uh, himself, relates himself to the creed is very comparable in the different big, great Western religions. Individualization of faith, you know. Uh, uh, stress on salvation, on faith, against, you know, knowledge, theology, intellectualization, uh, uh, the generation gap, uh, the crisis of the transmission of knowledge from one generation to the other, because for the uh, uh, for older generation, Islam is embedded in a culture. So they don't understand the born-again phenomena. The born-again phenomena, by definition, is the delinking between your genealogy, uh, your family, your uh, uh, 
own history and uh, your uh, uh, belief. Even it, it, if it has no impact, as I said, on uh, 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 the dogmas. So we have now a new landscape, which is, I would say, no more based on territories. The internet, of course, is playing a big role in that, you know, in creating this sort of a virtual umma. Conversions also are a symptom of this globalization of religions, you know. But people do not convert to any religion. They convert to specific forms of religion. They convert, for example, to Salafism when uh, it's related to Islam or to Sufism, or they convert to evangelicalism, uh, evangelicalism uh, when they convert to uh, Christianity. So it's the way evangelicalism and Salafism are working which is important. It's not the fact that one is Christianity, uh, the uh, other is Islam. And we have now new phenomena mm, of migration from one religion to the other, migration from one territory to the other, and uh, uh, conversions, uh, uh, which for me are not marginal, even if in numeric terms, in statistical terms, it's marginal. But it shows now that uh, uh, we are dealing with new forms of religiosity uh, which are transversal uh, in the West. And I would end just to quote uh, an anecdote, but it's very interesting. You know. We have now a, a movement of conversion among the Mexican Indians of the Chiapas area. Okay, it's very interesting, you know, uh, Subcommandant Marcos. Well, there are now hundreds of Indians who are converting to Islam. But who are converting this guy? A group which is called the Murabitun. And the Murabitun is exclusively made of Western European converted to Islam. You know? And these guys are hitting now the mosque in Granada. There is no one Arab, no one Turk you know, among them. They are all the, the, the leader. Uh, uh, um, uh, is Scott, you know, uh, Jan Dallas, you know, so now he's called uh, something else, uh, 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 Sheikh Abdurrahman, uh, uh, but uh, he's a Scott. And uh, it's an anecdote, you know, of course, I'm not saying that this is uh, uh, the most important thing and so on and so, but it's an anecdote which shows that we are now confronted with new trends uh, with, uh, uh, which has nothing to do with the Middle East, and that if we want now to understand the globalization of Islam, and, but we'll discuss uh, uh, that later, the relationship with democratization and so, uh, we have to look outside the classical, if I can say that, crisis of the Middle East. Thank you. What I want to try to do is to present a lot more questions. I think all of Nazar's questions were very important, and they prompted many more on my side about what it means to be Muslim or how Muslim practice is um, expanded, how we need to under develop an expanded view of Muslim practice in the global era, uh, particularly because I don't spend that much time in mosques looking exactly at how people pray, so I'm not, I, I'm, I don't feel competent to really talk about the specific changes in the cult. Uh, in cultic practices, but I, I think for me what's more important is to understand Islam not just as cult, but also as culture. And therefore, and to understand religion much more in, in broader terms, and I guess this builds on um, for me one of my favorite theologians, Paul Tillich, who talks about religion as ultimate concern uh, for anyone. Therefore, you can look at communism as a religion, you could look at the neoliberalism certainly as a religious ideology, or as an ideology with strong religious over and undertones, and therefore, if you look at it that way, then there are all sorts of practices we need to think of as being religious and as being part of the idea of understanding the 
possible developments of democracy in Muslim communities, whether in the Muslim-majority world, in Europe or elsewhere where there are minorities, especially on the grassroots level. And I want to focus a little bit more on the grassroots level because I think places like Iraq and other places where there have been elections show us that you can have formal elections and formal democratic processes without having any kind of real Demo civil liberal democracy on the grassroots where people's rights are actually respected. Um, I, I am hosting a, a panel in, in Italy in a, in a few weeks called Heavy Metal Islam. Why am I doing that? Because when I was in, in Iraq, of all places, I met uh, a heavy metal band in Iraq. Um, I was in Beirut uh, a few months ago, and I was in a record store, and there's all these heavy metal artists from Syria. There's heavy metal artists in Iran. There's heavy metal artists, actually, a good friend of mine in Morocco, um, many of whom were arrested a year and a half ago as being satanic musicians, but because they use pentagrams, which, of course, is part of the Moroccan flag, so it's hard to understand. They had a little bit trouble understanding why they were using part of the flag, but in their context, it was a symbol of Satan. Um, and, and they don't consider themselves bad Muslims, but they like heavy metal music. And, of course, if you think of Christian heavy metal in, in the U.S., you can think that maybe there can be Muslim heavy metal, just like there's already Islamic rap music. And is Islamic rap a form of religiosity? Certainly many of the rappers see the, this performance, and I, I want to talk about that a bit more, how we look at culture as part of dawah, as part of, as a religious endeavor. But there's also, of course, Sufi Republicans, right? If we look at the Fethullah Gulen movement in Turkey and around the world, and you have these very nice neoliberal Republican Muslims, the leader of whom lives in New Jersey right now, um, and they have, have while most Muslims, when I did my research at looking at Muslim responses to globalization, the majority of scholars or activists are against neoliberal globalization or American-dominated globalization. You have Turkish uh, Muslims, the majority of whom in, in these movements, which are very popular and growing rapidly, support neoliberal globalization, or at least a liberal globalization, because for them the main enemy is a state, an all-empowering state, which stifles them. So, of course, market, uh, liberal markets would would uh, be something they would want. There's also, when I was in Amman, uh, also last, late last year, I was at the Mecca Mall, and, and there's lots of Mecca Mall Muslims walking around. In, um, it was during Ramadan, and, but some people are there buying. Some people are there, they didn't really want to buy anything, so they're, and they can't drink anything or eat anything, but they're sitting at the cafes just talking, not shopping. But if you go to the Mecca Mall on Shariat Mecca, and of course Mecca is a fairly holy term uh, in Islam, in the middle of the Mecca Mall is an ad for sex in the city in Arabic, um, which in Arabic showtime, which I found kind of interesting in terms of what does this mean about, and of course Shariat Mecca in, in Amman is like an Arab Rodeo drive, and I, I'm sure most, um, most um, Jordanians can't probably shop in, in most of the stores in the Mecca Mall, yet they go and window shop. They go window shop, many of them in conservative, religiously, tradi supposedly traditional attire. So somehow it's part of their moral or aesthetic universe and doesn't interfere with how they live as, or practice their religion. Um, I also saw last year Urshad Manji speak, who I'm sure many of you have heard of, who's a self-described lesbian feminist Muslim which is a kind of interesting conglomeration, who most Muslims I know have a lot of problems with, but she's become the darling of the Christian and Zionist conservative right in America, most of whom do not like lesbians and do not like 
um, feminists and do not like Muslims. But if you're a lesbian feminist Muslim who, who's willing to talk about the trouble with Islam, all of a sudden they like you a lot. And, 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 um, and for her, after speaking to her and reading her book, this is not, you know, th this is the way she's trying to be a Muslim, by expanding people's horizons of what it means to be Muslim. So being out for her, uh, publicly out, is, a, is in a sense a religious calling. It's part of her attempt to shock other Muslims into broadening their horizons. Um, also, in, in Egypt, um, we have much more uh, a growing air-conditioned Islam, uh, what, what other people have called, I, also, I like that term, uh, especially in, when it's hot in the summer in Cairo. Air-conditioned Islam seems like a good kind of Islam. And uh, if you watch TV, you can, of course, always see Amr Khalid. I don't know how many people know who he is, but Amr Khalid is sort of the, uh, the well, he's a kind of combination of Dr. Phil and Oprah, but sort of mildly religious, a very liberal Muslim lay preacher who is, you know, really the, the imam or the preacher for the growing bourgeois middle class, especially young people. Fairly, you know, certainly harmless uh, in terms of, what he, you know, he's as far away from Osama bin Laden or any kind of radical extremist Islamic preacher as you can imagine. But well, I was at a conference with a, a woman from Syria, a professor of French, uh, Syrian professor of French literature and, and drama in Syria. She made a video. She actually took the time to compile a video of all the various religious programming her students were exposed to um, and why it's a threat, and I'll explain it more in a second. And he was one of the people she looked at. And then after him was a much more scary-looking, conservatively dressed, scowling imam, you know, with the beard intoning about adultery or something or other um, that she had a clip of. But while he was speaking and lecturing, and no doubt scaring his audience, underneath him were the stock quotes in Arabic flying across. So people could listen about why it's bad to have adultery and check their stock quotes in, in Arabic at the same time. So how does this impact being um, Muslim? And all these, of course, are, 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 um, are, are, um, fair, are parts of globalization. Um, just to give a couple of more examples, Nadia Yassin, is she, has she arrived yet? I haven't seen it. She didn't come yet. But I was with her a year and a half or two years ago in Budapest on a panel I organized. And of course, as most of you know, Nadia is one of the more most powerful or important Muslim political slash religious figures in the world. And she was sitting at a panel with myself and Tariq Ramadan and a couple of other, and John Esposito and a couple of others. And she's sitting, and the first thing she does is start quoting Chomsky. Um, and Lord Acton, and, and talking about how Muslim men have hijacked Islam from pretty much soon after when the Prophet died, and turned it into the anti-woman religion in many ways that it's become, and it's her job to take it back. And, and she's talking about this, of course, she's on a book tour now, so she's telling whoever will listen about this. And this, I think, is also, again, a very, uh, from what I can tell, she can disagree later, but um, in a sense, part of a religious practice. You know, it's not just praying, it's going out and trying to reclaim your religion. And Chomsky and Lord Acton, she also quoted, are, are at least a significant part of her heuristic imagination for understanding how to be a Muslim today and how to live in a globalized environment, not just the Hadith, not just what you would imagine if you listen to just the people that, um, that are our so-called enemies, the, the much more narrow set of... of, of uh, of doctrines or ideas they use. So the reason for pulling out, and I could, I could keep going, um, Iran, of course, our supposed enemy, the axis of evil, if you, if you look at polling, um, 
Iran is actually less religious, less anti-Western, and more secular, the Iranian people, than a place like Jordan, where the Mecca Mall is, which is supposedly very friendly to America, where most people, if you look at the data, are more more religious and more anti-American than in Iran. So again, how do you subsume religious practice of individuals? And I think one of the things globalization is very important is, is this process of individualization from larger countries where we supposedly have very big conflicts with and, and tend to make very gross generalizations about the people in these countries. Um, so what I'm trying to argue, obviously, is that Culture is crucial here, but not culture in the Huntingtonian sense of these slow-moving, huge civilizational blocks which rarely change and, have, and, and whose dynamics sort of bump up against others, don't necessarily interact and mutually inform in any kind of positive way, but rather looking at culture in a performative sense so that people are always culture, especially in a global environment, people are being Muslim in a way. They're, acting as Muslim, you are constantly being observed, you're constantly being watched, not just by the security forces, which is increasingly important, but you're constantly performing your religion, whether you are a heavy metal band, or whether you are a preacher, or whatever, it is certainly part of a larger global ecumen, and certainly these global flows are important. A lot of us focus on these global flows in Europe, and, and, and which, of course, is slowly moving from Dar al-Harb to increasingly Dar al-Islam. But also, but of course, people go back and forth from Europe to their countries, right? And they don't just go back and forth to train to blow up buildings or, or, or something. They go back and forth and bring new heavy metal CDs or, or hip-hop CDs or rhyme music. And so if you look at, I would say it's actually as important to follow the musicians as it is to follow the mullahs if you want to understand really Muslim practice uh, today. Um, so culture, I think we need to broaden religion out. And, and in that way then, w if we now try to situate this practice in terms of globalization, um, I will just take a couple of minutes to try to explain what I think globalization is. Um, then we can really understand how globalization is influencing um, Muslim practice. First of all, uh, if there's three or four ideas that define globalization, they probably would be one of them, the transformation from a Fordist Keynesian production-based system to f a flexible postmodern consumerist system, the communications revolution, which of course happened in the last century too during the first era of high imperialism or, or the first era of true globalization, um, the uh, transformation of production, using these new technologies that allows production to take place throughout the world and is changing the political economy of countries around the world. And also something most people don't talk about, which is the globalization of war and the economies of war. And, and I think the globalization of the war business is very crucial, and I'll, I'll explain that why in a minute. Um, the reason I think this is, is so important is because if you look at globalization, there's no way to separate contemporary globalization from the history of imperialism and colonialism. And I don't mean this in a crude way, you know, modern, uh, the U.S. is just an imperial power or something, which may or may not be true, but what I'm trying to say is there's a historical process going back hundreds of years, at least half a millennium, involving the emergence of capitalism, of nationalism, of modernity as an ideology and discourse, and all of which, especially in the global south and especially in the Muslim world, the main engines bringing them in ultimately were the processes of imperialism and colonialism in these countries. And these have had a profound impact on the way Muslims have experienced their relations with the 
so-called West, and continue to. So if you read the literature, Muslim, Arab, and Iranian, and Turkish literature on globalization, the, maybe 70% of it is critical, and uh, the majority of those who are critical are critical because they see it for very good reasons as a continuation or a new phase in a longer period of imperialism, which they don't mean crudely, but they mean process where the northern or western or G8 powers, whatever you want to call it, are continuing their ability to extract a lot more from the region than they give back in return. And this is actually, of course, uh, Thomas Friedman might uh, disagree, but he'd be wrong. This, in fact, is an accurate understanding of what globalization is, because I spent the last three years looking at every single World Bank, IMF, UNDP, you name it, study on economic globalization. And the things that we can learn from it is, in fact, globalization, A, is not happening to the extent people imagine across the region, especially across the global south, especially in the Middle East. And to, therefore, to the extent that it is happening, we talk about globalization, it is cultural globalization. That is the most important kind of globalization. And therefore, we need to understand globalization when writers talk about globalization as unhomeliness, right? which I think Professor Ra actually mentions that in his new book, or deterritorialization. Right? These things are very, these things are the same, very similar processes that have happened throughout the history of European colonialism. Homi Baba, of course, has used the word unhomeliness in a very interesting way. And so there are, when Side Cook talks about capitalism producing hideous schizophrenia, which spreads across the globe, right? Well, we only have to turn to Guy Deleuze and Guattari to understand that, yes, this, he's not the only one talking about that. And in fact, Muslims have, in fact, pre, their critiques of capitalism in many ways have predated that of the left, which is now so important. So I think that because we live in a system where the dominant world economic system clearly from the data I have looked at, has leads to increased, I'm talking about specifically in the Middle East, increased poverty, increased inequality, right? The openness to world trade also brings cultures that are viewed as damaging in a context where the economic and political benefits are rarely seen. This impacts the kind of practice that is going to be developed in response to globalization. What I don't want to do, though, is what so many people do, which is say that practice then is Osama bin Laden, or it's always negative. Because what I tried to show in the first part of this talk is that the practice is so varied that to only focus on a very politicized, angry, what Manuel Castells would call the resistance identities that can form to a negative globalization. While that's important, especially given the violence involved, there's also project identities being formed, and there are also Muslims who are much open. And for every, for all of the ghetto Islam that's been formed, and that's a big term that people use in studying Islam in Europe, there's also the much more open Islam, right? The problem is, in this country, someone like Tariq Ramadan who wants to talk about it, they don't let him in uh, to speak about it anymore. So if we want to understand Muslim practice, we need to reach out a lot more to a lot more Muslims than the Muslims who just appear on TV or write books or send bombs, right? That, that's one part and it's an important part, but Muslim practice is much broader and in many ways much more engaged with everyone else, with the rest of us. While the emergence of the Islamist movement in different parts of the Muslim world has attracted the attention of both scholars and international media in the last two decades, most of the analyses have focused on the explicitly political character of the Islamic mobilization. As it has come to be increasingly recognized, however, recently, the Islamist movement may be better understood as a broad-based 
Islamic awakening or Islamic revival, whose socio-religious character extends far beyond the politics of Islamist activists and their state-centered activities. This larger Islamic revival is manifest in a number of socio-religious activities that include a significant growth in the number of neighborhood mosques, many of which provide charitable and welfare services, accompanied by a dramatic increase in the attendance of these mosques, both by women and men, and the establishment of a large number of Islamic schools. In addition, there is a proliferation of multiple expressions of religious sociability that include an increased consumption and production of popular Islamic literature, a brisk market in the buying and selling of religious sermons and songs on cassette tapes, and a growing circle of intellectuals who write and comment upon contemporary affairs in the popular press from an Islamic point of view. While it is customary for scholars of Islamic politics to ignore this dimension of Islamic sociability, my argument is that the strength and resilience of the Islamist movement resides precisely in the array of religio-cultural activities that are decentralized and informally organized by a large number of diverse social networks. While the diffuse character of the Islamic revival does not necessarily pose any direct threat to the viability of the quasi-secular Egyptians, uh, of the quasi-secular liberal Egyptian state, as do, for example, Islamist political parties, the increasing Islamization of the Egyptian public makes the realization of a secular liberal society on which the liberal state must ultimately rest more difficult. But by this, I do not mean to suggest that there is an inherent compatibility between religion and politics, as some would suggest, and increasingly we have evidence from all over Western Europe and Christian societies that that's not the case. Rather, what I want to suggest is that the kind of projects this movement seeks to realize sit uncomfortably in rather unpredictable ways with the range of goals that the quasi-secular liberal Egyptian state wants to institute. Let me flesh out this claim through an analysis of a women's mosque movement I worked with that is part of the larger Islamic revival for over two years. In this movement, women from a wide cross-section of the society are vigorously engaged in the teaching and studying of Islamic scriptures, social practices, and forms of bodily comportment that Orthodox Muslims consider critical to the cultivation of the ideal virtuous self. This is the first time in Egyptian history that such a large number of women from a variety of socioeconomic backgrounds are holding public meetings and mosques to teach each other Islamic doctrine, thereby altering the historically male-centered character of mosques as well as Islamic pedagogy. Despite the active involvement of women in this religious field, the women mo women's mosque movement does not aim to reinterpret the male exegetical tradition from, quote, a feminist point of view, end of quote, but is exclusively grounded in the established tradition of Islam associated with the four schools of Islamic thought. The women's mosque movement is part of a broad moral and pietistic current constitutive of the Islamic revival that draws upon the Islamic concept of dawa to reform the Muslim individual and the larger community in accordance with orthodox concepts of Islamic virtue. Such a project differs from that of Islamic political activists who view the state as the primary instrument of social reform and concentrate the efforts on securing its control. While the participants of the mosque movement share with the Islamist political groups the view that Egyptian society is becoming increasingly secularized, they differ in regard to the means by which they want to correct this trend. For majority of the people engaged in dawa activities of the Islamic revival, like those I worked with, the project of making the society more religiously devout 
unfolds in spite of and therefore within the parameters of the existing institutions and policies of the state. According to the organizers, the women's mosque movement emerged in response to the perception that religious knowledge as a means to organizing daily life has become increasingly marginalized under modern structures of secular governance. The participants of the movement often criticize what they consider to be an increasingly prevalent form of religiosity in Egypt, one that accords Islam the status of an abstract system of beliefs that has no direct bearing on the way one lives and structures one's daily life. This trend, usually referred to by the movement's participants as secularization or westernization, is seen to have reduced Islamic knowledge, both as a mode of conduct as well as a set of principles to the status of custom or folklore. Thus, the participants of the movement use the terms westernization and secularization to register a loss of a kind of religious sensibility, a form of being and acting, an embodied manner of conduct, one that, if not actually preserved and resurrected, will be forever lost. This movement, therefore, seeks to educate lay Muslims in those virtues, ethical capacities, and forms of reasoning which the participants perceive to have become unavailable or irrelevant to the lives of ordinary Muslims. Practically, this means instructing Muslims not only in the proper performance of religious duties and acts of worship, but more importantly, familiarizing them with the exegetical tradition of the Quran and the prophetic sayings. Instruction in this tradition, however, is geared less toward inculcating a scholarly knowledge of the texts than a practical understanding of how these texts should guide one's conduct in daily affairs. The commentaries provided by the preachers often emphasize how a particular verse or a Quranic setting might apply to practical problems of daily living. This movement is very vast, and for example, in a city of 11 million people in Cairo, there is hardly any neighborhoods that do not have such mosque groups in attendance, and them varies anywhere from five to 500 women per session. Now, secularism has often been understood as the separation of religion from matters of state, as well as the increasing differentiation of society into different spheres, economic, legal, educational, familial, and so on, of which religion is one part. In so far as the participants of this movement do not argue for the promulgation of the Islamic law, they do not constitute a challenge to the former aspect of secularization, as do some of the more militant associations as well as the state-oriented Islamist activists. The piety movement or the Dawa movement solution to the problem that Egyptian society has become secularized entails an agenda of moral reform that leaves intact the existing economic and political structures. Their activities, however, do pose more of a provocation to the second aspect of the secularizing process insofar as they seek to imbue each of the various spheres of contemporary life, including employment, education, and entertainment, with a regulative sensibility that takes its cue from the Islamic theological corpus rather than from secular ethics. Thus, the mosque movement is aimed at introducing a common set of shared norms or standards by which one is to judge one's conduct, whether in the context of employment, education, domestic life, or other kinds of social activities. For example, in the last three decades, supporters of the piety movement or the Dawa movement have established a number of Islamic schools in order to redress the secular character of modern Egyptian education. Their efforts have been directed not so much at creating a new educational system as at introducing practices that create an Islamic awareness within the existing institutions. 
This includes an emphasis on the study of religious materials that are already a part of the curriculum, creating the spaces and times for prayer during school hours, hiring religiously observant teachers, and so on. Insofar as this strategy makes Islamic ethics central to the process of acquiring different kinds of knowledges and skills, however secular they may be, it infuses the current educational institutions with a kind of sensibility that is potentially transformative of them. Now, the institutional context in which this movement, particularly the women's mosque movement, has sought to propagate its critique of certain forms of religiosity falls under the umbrella term of dawa. Dawa is one of the key concepts through which much of the discussion about religious observance and its relevance to a range of social issues has proceeded in the modern period. Linguistically, dawa means a call, invitation, appeals, or summons. It is a Quranic concept associated primarily with the responsibilities of the Prophet. Dawa never received much doctrinal elaboration in classic elaboration in classical Islamic writings, and it was only in late 19th and early 20th century that it came to acquire its current meaning, namely as an invitation to fellow Muslims to the pursuance of greater piety in all aspects of their life and a duty incumbent upon Muslims by God to teach each other correct Islamic practice. Currently in Egypt, the meaning of dawah encompasses a range of practices that had hitherto been considered outside of the proper domain of the classical notion of dawah. These activities include the establishment of neighborhood mosques, social welfare organizations, Islamic educational institutions and printing presses, as well as urging fellow Muslims toward greater religious responsibility. The institution of the mosque has played a crucial role in this revival, not only as a place for religious education, but also as a center for the dissemination of a range of social services and vocational skills. The number of mosques in Egypt has grown dramatically in the last 30 years, largely established and supported by locally based neighborhood groups. Many of these mosques are the center of both political, cultural, and religious activity. Let me now give you a brief synopsis of the different protagonists who comprise the field of Dawa to give a sense of the diversity of this movement. The contenders who speak in the name of Dawa have multiplied in the last century, contributing to its semantic and its institutional proliferation. One of the originary moments in this contestation may be traced back to the figure of Hassan al-Banna, who devoted extensive efforts at the elaboration of the concept of Dawa. Al-Banna founded the Organization of Muslim Brotherhood in 1928, an organization that has since grown into one of the largest reform-oriented Islamist political groups of the 20th century in the Middle East. Muslim Brotherhood members have helped popularize the figure of the Daya, the one who speaks in the name of Dawa, beyond any other organization of this period. Al-Banna's elaboration of Dawa was grounded in practical concerns and aimed toward creating the institutional structures and sensibilities toward which Western culture and political hegemony could be contested. Al-Banna largely directed his organizational efforts at the education and reform of fellow Muslims who he perceived were increasingly becoming secularized and westernized. Al-Banna's elaboration of Dawa incorporated many elements of modern political and social activism into the traditional call of observance to religious duties. The Muslim brothers visited cafes, clubs, and bars to urge fellow Muslims toward greater piety, engaged in trade union activities, made wide use of the media, and an increasingly receptive and literate public. Mosques, which Al-Banna defined as the schools of the commoners, the popular universities and the colleges that lend educational services to the young and old alike, were identified as a key site for the implementation of the Brotherhood's program of Dawa. This call to Dawa was crucially based on the idea of individual duty, 
an element that was further combined with the trenchant critique of traditional religious scholars and their institutions for having made religion into a specialized knowledge, largely put into the service of ruling elites and not to serve the common person's concerns. Out of this combination of criticism of traditional religious education and an emphasis on individual obligation emerged the figure of the self-trained preacher, or daya, the one who conducts dawah, whose commitment to Islam was supposed to encompass a critique of the social forces that had led to the decline of the Islamic community. Now, the second key institutional player within the field of da'wah is the Egyptian state itself, which has increasingly come to manage a number of religious institutions, including the Islamic University of Al-Azhar and a, a number of mosques, under the supervision of the Ministry of Religious Affairs. The terminology of da'wah, once associated with the activities of Muslim Brotherhood in the early 20s, has, been increasing, has increasingly become an integral part of the official enterprise of the state since the 1960s. This is most manifest in the training that the Egyptian state now offers to preachers so as to harness their skills in the building of the nation, one in which language of Islamic culture, heritage, and history plays a far more significant role than the old legalistic language of doctrinal disputes and theological reasoning. Now, the state's appropriation of the language of Dawa for its nation-building efforts has met with serious challenges. Key among them is the critique voiced by the Muslim brothers, but also others, that preachers and religious scholars, by virtue of being employees of the state, have become mouthpieces for the dissemination of the state's message. That the truth of the religious message is compromised by the imbrication of these speakers in the statist agenda. In contrast to the preacher qua state bureaucrat, what has come to flourish instead is the oppositional figure of the self-trained preacher, or daya a man or a woman capable of speaking from a relative position of autonomy, living closer to the pulse of the society by virtue of holding an ordinary job like any other person, but still committing herself to the cause of God and to political criticism. Faced with the proliferation of Dawa activities, the Egyptian state has itself intensified its efforts to regulate this field. Now, in addition to the state and the brotherhood, there are two additional protagonists who have played an increasingly salient role in the proliferation of Dawa activities. These include a wide array of neighborhood mosque groups and religious social service organizations of the kind that I worked with. As I mentioned earlier, there has been a renaissance of mosque-related activities since the 70s, a development that has been for the most part initiated by local neighborhoods. It is again the independent figure of the Daya that amplifies emblemizes the moral authority of this grassroots movement. And finally, the fourth protagonist in the field of the Dawah, crucially, is a powerful array of Islamic non-governmental organizations, some of which were founded as, as early as late 19th century. These are Islamic non-profit organizations. A good example of this network of organization is Al-Gam'ayya al-Shara'iyya, established in 1912 that currently owns more than 7,000 mosques in Cairo alone. In addition, the Gamaya is well known for building an elaborate neighborhood-based network of support that provides financial assistance to the disabled, orphans, and widows living in a community. The financial support for the organization comes from the neighborhoods in which services are provided, and they do not accept funding from, uh, uh, from outside sources. The Gamaya also runs a number of institutes that train people in dawah activities, particularly preaching. 
Now, it is not entirely surprising that it is under the rubric of dava that women have entered the field of religious pedagogy. There are both theological and sociological reasons for this. To begin with, there is a fair amount of doctrinal flexibility in regard to who can undertake dava. Unlike some of the earlier religious scholars, the prevalent interpretation of dava holds that all those who are knowledgeable in rules of Islamic conduct and abide by them can engage in this activity. Similarly, many religious scholars, both male and female, maintain that the requirements women must meet in order to undertake dawah are not so different uh, when, when fulfilled by men. The practice of dawah, therefore, is predicated not so much upon doctrinal expertise, but one's moral uprightness. It must be recognized, however, that these doctrinal interpretations alone could not have assured women's activism in mosques had it not been for conditions of higher literacy and increased social mobility afforded to women in post-colonial Egypt. The paradoxical effect of the state-mandated system of secular education has been that it has also at the same time spawned a very staunch critique of the secular institutions which made uh, higher education possible for women. And it has, in fact, served as an impetus to the creation of a new kind of religious sensibility, which has not simply effaced older forms of belonging and community reform, but has really also built upon new kinds of affiliations, political desires, and, and particularly the desire on the part of women to enter the field of Islamic pedagogy on its own terms. Now, the Egyptian state has been increasingly concerned about this development as has, and has sought to curtail the field of dawah activities after it was able to put down the militant threat in the 19, early 1990s or curtail its serious um, infractions, upon the, infractions upon the state. What it has done increasingly is to make uh, dawah activities increasingly more difficult to pursue. One of the things that has instituted is to start requiring preachers, men and women, to, to um, enroll in the process of licensing. They have increased surveillance in mosques and so on and so forth. People who do not, who, uh, who preach without a state, um, state training and state licenses are then banned from, from preaching. Now, it would it would seem that such concerns of Islamic sociability have no real, uh, are of little consequence to issues of Islamic politics. And what I'm trying to argue is that that is not necessarily the case. And this has to do with the fact that increasingly as the sociocultural landscape of, 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 of Islamic ethics is changing, it is making the possibility of Islamic uh, a secular liberal society being realized in Egypt. And so the Egyptian state's attempts to curtail the dawah activity are not simply its paranoia, but emanate from the realization that, in fact, what needs to be done is to fight Islamist activists on their cultural and political fronts. Thank you.